Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, everyone. It's Kaveh from the House of Pod, the show that you presumably just started listening to on purpose so you probably already knew that anyways i'm really excited for you guys to hear this episode we have this great interview with Kristen flannery it's about an important issue that we haven't covered well enough and uh, we're really grateful for her perspective on it and after that stay tuned for a powerful essay by dr chase anderson he's a child psychiatry fellow over at ucsf and if you have an essay, if you have a poem, song, or some bit of stand-up that you would like to contribute to the show and share, send it our way. Welcome back to the house of Bahad. I'm Kabe. I'm Lizzie. That one Lizzie. sounded constipated, that intro. Is that like the sound people make, you think, like when they're trying to move something hard through? Yeah, I can tell about you what your stools are like from the intro that you give. I'm just really? letting our listeners know. <laughs> I am a GI doctor. <laughs> That's interesting. She's good. She's yeah. good, folks. Real good. Uh, um, Lizzie, we have a special guest coming on the show. We are going to have uh, Kristen Flannery come on. She's a communications manager. Do you know what that is? No, no. I don't either. I don't does either. She, does she have a We're podcast? Gonna, I, I, everyone does. So Probably. why wouldn't she? Right, why right. wouldn't she? Right. Um, we're going to find out what that means, but we're also going to talk to her about what it's like to be a, a caregiver uh, of a loved one who has serious illness. Because we talk a lot about patients and we talk a lot about doctors, but we don't talk a lot about the caregivers, the people that are there for their support the trauma, the stress, all the stuff on those people. So I think it's a good time to discuss that. We haven't yet. Um, so let's get her on. We're going to chat about that. Before we do that, a couple of things, people, a couple of things. Want to ask you, if you haven't already, go to our uh, iTunes, subscribe, and also leave us a review. Reviews are fun. Let me read one for you now. Here is a review from Steel 3 Five stars all around. Very informative and very funny. You don't have to be a medical professional to get a lot out of this podcast. And you'll learn a lot about how medicine, politics, and everyday life intersect. Wow. That actually really nails it, I think. Thank you very much, Peace Steel. We really appreciate that. Um, if you haven't, please do that. Leave us a review. Appreciate it. Also, thank you to Nadim. Follow us on Twitter, at The House of Pod. Lizzie, is there anyone you want to thank? Never. Stay tuned for Christmas Flannery. Welcome back today. 
for CPR week. I bet you didn't know it was CPR week. Well, actually, take it back. By the time this episode comes out, it's no longer CPR week. But there is a CPR week, and that's when we're recording this. We have a very special guest. We have Kristen Flannery. She is the communications manager for the Bellin Blank Center for Gifted Education and Talent Development at the University of Iowa. We're going to find out what that means. We've had her husband on the show. He's uh, one of these guys who's on TikTok. He's a doctor who's well known on the interwebs. And he came on to discuss his battle. I don't know if I like using that term, but battle with cancer and surviving cardiac arrest. But in hearing his story, it became pretty clear to us that you were a major part of his story. Um, and we kind of wanted to see the, the story from your perspective, particularly the, the cardiac arrest, but also the, the cancer survivorship as well, because it's a perspective that we don't hear enough on our show, at least, which is the, that of the caregiver and the stresses on the caregiver and the experience of trauma and shock and how you deal with it. So we want to get to that. But first, because we only know medicine, it may be a little bit about music. What the hell is it that you do? We don't understand. Can you tell us what, what, that, what it means to be a communications manager? Yeah, I've done, I've had a very twisty, turny path to where I am right now. Um, so I have a lot of things in my background, um, mostly communications and psychology and education, um, and specifically education with, um, you know, the real nerds, just the people that really enjoy learning and are very smart and, and that kind of group. And so all of that through various pathways has led me um, to this job which uh, we were, I work at a gifted education center, which basically means we put on programming and we do research and we train teachers um, of students in kindergarten through 12th grade who are at the kind of upper end of the bell curve in terms of their, their learning, the advanced learners. Um, you know, the, the school system generally works really well. If you think of it as a bell curve, it works really well for the people in the middle under the <clears throat> bulk of the bell curve. Uh, but of course, there's people at the lower end that that model doesn't work so well for, and we provide special education services for those people. Uh, but there's also people at the higher end um, that we kind of argue over what the label should be, but is, is you know, currently called gifted, um, which basically just means they're just at the upper end of that bell curve. And so the model of the regular school system isn't serving them very well either all the time. Um, and so we, we come in and kind of try to fill those gaps and try to help their teachers understand them and their parents understand them and help them find each other so they feel like a sense of community with people who are who are like them because you're often one of the, the odd people out when you're one of those kids so you like yeah. nerds is what I'm hearing yeah. I love nerds <laughs> I am a nerd I married a, well I don't know that he's a nerd he's very oh, smart but I don't he's think a he's, nerd. A nerd. He's, he's a nerd he's, he's just like I'm like what nerd. what Come is on. he oh he's a, he's like a geek he's more of a geek yeah, I don't really know what that right. means that's but. what I was thinking too like yeah he's all into his TikTok and stuff but he's right. not like the same kind of nerd right but yes I love the nerds well, it's, it's very interesting what you're doing and that you're saying, you know, as far as gifted, that these students are called gifted now. I feel like it used to be gifted and talented. It used to be honored. Yeah. It used to, like, what is, what is like the stigma with like, why does it keep changing every five to 10 years? Like, what is I that? Know. What's wrong with being called gifted and talented? Yeah. So there's, there's a lot of debate all the time about mm -hmm. like, no one, basically somebody gave it that name. And then ever since then, people have been arguing over it. So um, I think it's the the idea in the general population that you know every child is gifted, meaning right. every child has gifts. Every child is a gift, sure, but what we mean is a very specific thing when we say gifted or gifted and talented. And they still do use gifted and talented. I just the, yeah, when it's your job day in and day out, I, you just shorten it to gifted. Right. <laughs> oh, they still because <laughs> so. I'm like maybe you're gifted in one thing, but you have talent in another. It's like the difference between like right. book smart and street smart. Like so many people right. have talents that aren't like objectified, you know, and you can't totally. quantify and test it. But that's interesting. Right. Yeah, and some people have, um, you know, some people would qualify for gifted education programming in one particular area. Some people have just kind of a general, you know, above average or a couple standard deviations above average um, ability kind of across the board. It really varies. I mean, people are, people are different. So, yeah. um, but just in general, it's trying to catch those kids at the upper end of the bell curve that have needs that school systems are just 
not set up to be able to meet, you know, to no fault of their own. It's just not what the model is. Right. Like they're not being challenged enough or something like that. Correct. Right. Exactly. Well, it sounds like you have no medical like training or background, right? To segue into a little bit about your experience, mostly with your husband's illness and dealing with Mm -hmm. all that. You don't have, even though you're a super mega nerd that we all agree and appreciate and respect and, Mm -hmm. you know, kind of relate to really. Um, I'm not a nerd. I don't know what you're talking about. Yeah. Um, then you really have nothing, no like frame of reference. So like the medical stuff, obviously we try not to use too much jargon on the show, but in general, mm-hmm. uh, that's alien to you, right? Or did, were you well, like one of these I would, kids I who was like pre-med? Far. No, no, I was never pre-med. I was smarter than that, but. Um. <laughs> nice, nice. Burn, no. Lizzie. Um, I was not face. pre-med. I was a government major, whatever that means, but yeah. Yeah. Um, I do have, uh, you know, like a decent background in biology. Um, I minored in it. That was one of my minors in college. Um, I studied cognitive neuroscience for my grad work. Um, so, and I did take even the medical school neuroscience class, um, as part of that, but you know, it's, it's not nearly what a doctor would have. That's for sure. But I also have, I have kind of a weird insider outsider perspective on the world of medicine because, um, you know, I met my husband in college and he was just a cellular molecular biology major at that point. He wasn't an ophthalmologist. He wasn't a doctor. He certainly wasn't Dr. Glockenflagen at that point. Um, And so I've been with him since then and I've seen the whole ride from a really intimate point of view, you know, so I wasn't the medical student, but I know so many medical students. They were my friends. We went to the same school. He went to med school. I went to grad school there. Um, So they, we all hung out together. Um, I've known all the people he's met along the way that he's become close with uh, and worked with. So, you know, I've been through med school, residency, transitional year, um, attending, you know, just the whole yeah. kit and caboodle. I've been there. So that's actually kind of one of my soapboxes about, I don't know how derailed you want me to get, but about Please. non-medical spouses in a medical marriage is, um, I say we, and I do that very intentionally. We went to med school. We went to residency because I was there too. Right. <laughs> I went as yeah. well. I was uprooted and we moved and all of those things. And it affected me too, you know, he didn't come home until whatever ungodly hour, you know, during residency. And so I had to pick up the slack at home. You know, it all, it happens to us too. It's just in a different capacity. Oh, it it totally, that's a great point to bring up. I mean, Lizzie and I were both, I think we were both in, first of all, real quick, Lizzie, at some point, we've got to get back to this government major business. At some point, we need to get back to that because I had no idea that happened. It's a ridiculous major is why. But yeah. Different show. Yeah, different show. In this this situation, like I think Lizzie and I both were in pretty serious relationships when we went to medical school. Neither one of them lasted because Mm -hmm. medical school is a really tough time to be in a relationship, Mm -hmm. particularly with somebody who is not in the world of medicine. It's hard for them to see exactly why you are the way you are. And it's not just the yeah. the the time he spent away it's not just that it's also there is this um almost required selfishness like he had mm-hmm. to like spend a lot of time right. studying he had to focus on things his energy probably wasn't there for you in the way it would have been before or afterwards i mean yeah well and it's kind of odd though because this is when i really recommend you find yourself another nerd because he was doing that with his stuff and i was doing that with my stuff so right. it really worked out really well. Like we have always had a relationship where we are independent together is kind of how I describe it, that we, mm-hmm. we both have our own things going on and we both have a lot of interests and there's some overlapping interests to be sure. Yeah. Um, but we, from day one, we were going to school together and, and serious students, you know, we were both very serious students with serious ambitions for our careers. And so we put a lot of time in that. So we had a, I can't tell you how many Friday nights that we spent just kind of studying at the library together, saying nothing to each other, but nerding at least we're together, out. you know, nerding yeah, out exactly. together. Mm-hmm. But that's, um, no, it's true. But the, but being a partner, um, a significant other, again, my boyfriend was essentially living with me when I was in med school, but there's still that, that, that intensity of going to the hospital and being in these classes and taking these mm-hmm. huge tests that feel so important at the time. And I think Dr. Glockenflecken is great online showing how ridiculous, 
how ridiculous some of the things that we learned were like to apply to medicine. They're just so frivolous now in retrospect, some of them, obviously Mm -hmm. some are incredibly important. I mean, it's all important, but we just don't apply it every day. Right. Um, It's like learning calculus in high school. When the hell do you ever use that again? Like in Right. But I can see how a significant other can see, like feel maybe jealousy because there's few things in life. And we've talked Mm -hmm. about this on the show that being in a band together, being in the military, and I think going through residency together are Mm -hmm. few of these experiences that are so intense and so personal. It's actually hard to explain to someone else. You know, there are people who nobody else in the world would like, but you spend one or two weeks of night float with them. And you're like, that guy's the coolest most amazing guy I've ever met. And you never <laughs> right. heard him and you never heard him talk a word for the four years of med school. But then you spend those right. two weeks on night flow and you're like, damn, you know, and like you just it's that there's a connection there, you know? So right. I can see how it's really hard for relationships. So it's good that you guys yeah. could nerd out together. And I agree yeah. that you learn so much just from the going through that with him. Cause I tell my fiance mm-hmm. now, you know, these four years were med school, these three years were residency. I did a chief year. Then I did a fellowship, you know, and like now I'm an attending. He's like, gets it wrong all the time, all the time. And it's really hard unless you've been there with someone, you know? Right. Yeah. Yeah. I can see how it would be just totally not make any sense. And you're a doctor. You're you're a doctor. I don't care about all the other stuff. It's you're a doctor. Right. All I need to know is you're a doctor. Right. Right. Exactly. Yeah. No, it's a, it's a whole world unto itself. And so I think it was helpful in some regard to be able to be along for the ride the whole way, because I, you know, I got to see all the ins and outs of it um, and be there with him. You know, it helped that I was going to school at the same time. Um, It became a kind of a different thing that we had to adjust to when I was no longer in school and he was, or he was in residency and I had moved on to, you know, career. So those were trickier. But uh, for those first few years where we were both just studying our heads off, you know, that was kind of nice to have each other. You can say ass off. You can say studying your ass off. (laughs) No. And you had kids, right? In medical. Well, he was in medical school. You guys had at least one kid, right? If not two. Yeah, we did. We did all the um, bad advice that you did, but we did Mm -hmm. it on purpose. Like it wasn't an accident. We knew what we were doing and we did it anyway, but uh, we had our reasons. But we had a first kid. Sounds devious. We had our reasons to have kids. Don't question <laughs> we had, us. <laughs> we had our reasons to do it at the times that we did it. And it, you know what? In retrospect, if we hadn't, uh, we wouldn't be able to have children. So well, it that, turned out okay. That's. We should then segue into the first time you were dealt uh, with being a caregiver, which is mm-hmm. during medical school, your husband was... When he was in medical school, he was diagnosed Mm -hmm. with testicular cancer. That baby was almost one. He had his um, first diagnosis of testicular cancer, um, which obviously was just a huge surprise um, at the time. So then in residency, we had our second kid. And that was his first year of residency. And then when that kid was about a year old, he had another diagnosis of testicular cancer. Um, And he was just in the lucky 1% of people or whatever it is that it was a completely new recurrence. It wasn't that the first time they didn't get it all or it came back. No, it was a completely separate event. Um, And so he had it in both testicles, which is really rare. Um, And of course, I don't know. How that is, many? I have not, I can't, I don't know, Lizzie, have you heard of that happening before? No, I mean, no. We're not I the doctors not, who I deal with that, know, but right? that's, yeah. that is yeah. surprising. <laughs> I, have, I have not heard that happening. That is, yeah. that must, so, uh, you know, I, I know this is uh, one of these crazy unfair questions, but what was that experience like for you? Yeah. Uh, they, both of them were different. Um, the first one, it was bizarre. Um, and that day was kind of a, you'll notice the pattern in me if you listen long enough. It, I just went into, um, logistics mode, like, okay, they want to take him, like we were in ultrasound and they wanted him to go back to surgery immediately. And so he didn't even like, he didn't have a bag. He didn't, we just came for a doctor's appointment we thought. And so, um, they took him back. I had, we came with the baby. 
um, because we didn't have a babysitter. And I took the baby back. I called some friends to see if they would come over and, and sit with the baby. I said, I don't know how long I'll be gone. Could be all night, could be an hour. I don't know. Uh, and so they were very gracious to come over and, and put the baby to bed, do all that stuff, packed a bag, went back up to the hospital, um, called. I was just sitting in the waiting room. I called his parents, called my parents, called all the people, and just kind of waited until he was out of surgery. Um, and it, that all went really well. Um, and then we, it was, it was odd. It was a shock, but it just kind of felt like, okay, well, that was a pretty big speed bump, right? Like that was, we weren't expecting that, but you know, it kind of came and it went really quickly and now it's gone and now we'll, we'll move on with our lives. Um, because, you know, at that point it was, it was not expected to affect him very much, you know, um, you've got another one, so <laughs> it'll do the things you need it to do. And, you know, they told us what to keep an eye on and we just kind of went along with our lives and everything was fairly normal. Um, until in residency, he was getting really grouchy and tired, but like, when was he not grouchy and tired the whole time? Plus, in residency, who's not grouchy and tired? Yeah. Um, so we didn't really think a lot of it, but then, you know, it turned out that he was grouchy and tired because he was experiencing another round of, of cancer. So, um, so that time was a lot harder because it felt like now we're at like a point of no return, you know, that this, there was a before and an after, uh, the first time felt like just, uh, we went through it. And the second time felt like there's a before and an after, you know, that, that, that chapter is closed and now we're in a new chapter. Um, because they, I'd probably people outside of the medical world, may not know they they treat it by removing the testicles so you know they removed one the first time and then they removed the second one the second time which of course means um you know we could no longer have children and it also meant that um you know your testicles produce testosterone and and testosterone turns out to be a really important hormone turns out um so he had to be on hormone therapy for the rest of his life it was awful trying to go through the insurance business of getting that approved and getting him started on it and getting him access to it in the right intervals. It's still to this day, it's a little bit tricky, but getting it all set up, it was just horrible. Um, and it's scary to think that you rely on a hormone. You rely on some kind of external medicine that someone else controls very tightly like if we want to go on a vacation and but it'll overlap with when he's supposed to be able to get another one you know there's no buffer right. you can't like build up a backstock mm -hmm. to right. have one to take with you when you travel or something you know it's just it's, it's a pain but it's strange for any young person to have to be reliant on any medication much less one yeah. this important it's i under that that makes a lot of sense wait he takes it yeah. by patch or injection or he started he started with the gel um, okay. and that didn't, it, it was a whole, it took probably a year or two to try all the different kinds and dosages before we found what really works for him. So, but now he's, he takes an injection every week, um, and just, we'll have to do that indefinitely. Yeah. So. You know, through this whole experience, through both of these, um, being a caregiver for him, what things would you like doctors and healthcare professionals to know mm -hmm. about? caregivers oh boy a lot <laughs> um caregiver means so many things not just you know older people in end-of-life situations mm -hmm. um there's a just hugely diverse set of people that make up caregivers from all ages and all backgrounds and all ethnicities um the other thing you know, aside from being, aside from giving care, we are like what I said about medical training, all of this happens to us too. We are also patients, just not in the traditional way that we think about that word in the medical world. Um, we, we experience a lot of trauma in different ways, a lot of medical trauma. Um, it just goes completely unseen and 
you know, ignored. And it's not something that, that there are any supports for. It's not something people really notice most of the time. It's not something they think is important to think about. Um, and it's not because they're trying to be mean or anything. It's just not something that's on anyone's radar. But when you're in these kinds of situations, it's terrifying <laughs> and it's so stressful and you have all sorts of issues, sleep problems, stress, maybe, you know, that leads you towards drinking too much or, you know, using drugs to self-medicate or, you know, it's all sorts of other problems that that, that that leads to. And I kind of think of it as, you know, when I walk in that hospital with my husband, who's the patient, capital P, you can treat me too, you can treat me now, or you can treat me later. But if you wait till later, it's gonna be worse and more expensive and more of a drain on people and harder on our family and our lives, and, you know, but, but those are your choices. Not to treat me should not be a choice because something has happened to me. And I'm not saying force treatment on people that don't want it, obviously, but I think that our system needs to be set up better to, to put those people in that role into the system in some way. Some support needs to be offered. There needs to be personnel to take care of those people. Um, I don't think the doctors necessarily need to be taking care of them. Maybe something more like a social worker or um, a counselor or something like that. But, right. um, but someone needs right. to be in that role. And I think a lot of doctors really try to do that work because a lot of you go into this work because you want to help people. You genuinely do. And we shouldn't have to put the onus on the individual doctors to do that. I think I see it as a system failure because doctors are already tasked with doing so much and on limited budgets and, you know, 15 minute appointments when you should really take an hour and, you know, and the, and, and the doctors don't like that either. They're not trying to do that. They're, that's being forced on them. Oftentimes in those situations, we are in shock when you're talking to us, like actual medical shock. I'm a highly capable, take charge kind of person, but I was physically incapable of doing anything like that. I needed yeah. somebody to just be there to hold my hand and sit me down or take me, yeah. you know, that's yeah. the level of care that people need. They don't need a pamphlet. Pamphlets yeah. are great, they serve a purpose. Yeah. That's not the time. <laughs> Yeah. Right. I mean, you're saying right. you're in shock and that you're like a logistical person. And this is all in relation to your experience with your husband having been diagnosed with testicular cancer, not once, but twice. And then to lay on top of that, he had his heart stopped. <laughs> you, yes. And the only reason he's alive today to talk about it is because of you. So like you're talking all this about like, again, the testicular cancer and being in shock, but like how, tell us about your experience with recognizing that your husband was breathing differently and or not breathing mm -hmm. and how that all happened. And like, you know, you're talking about shock. I, I literally, I mean, he was literally shocked, right? And also yeah, yeah. figuratively <laughs> you're shocked. Like how, right. you know, how do you not, how do you adjust to like, I'm sure you had acute like um, adjustment disorders, what we call right after, and maybe mm -hmm. even today PTSD. Like, I don't know how you sleep in the same bed with him. I'd be like poking mm -hmm. him all night long. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, so it was actually, it was the day after Mother's Day of 2020, which was already a garbage year. Mm -hmm. um, early on in the COVID pandemic, I think we're about three months in, at least in America to, you know, recognizing that it's, it's actually here and we have to deal with it. Um, it was the day after Mother's Day. We had a great Mother's Day, just kind of hung around together as a family and had a nice day, went to bed. And then at uh, 4.45 in the morning, he um, woke me up by making a very weird sound. Um, I did not know what agonal breathing is, but of course, in retrospect, that's what he was doing. Uh, but at the time, it just sounded like kind of like snoring, but way too loud. 
you know, for his, because he does snore usually. So I, you know, I know the mm-hmm. general, um, but it was really loud. It was much louder than it, than he normally snores. And it sounded different. It was just, just not right in some way, right? Like it sounded a little scary. Um, it sounded kind of panicked almost, or, or, you know, just, just not right. The tempo wasn't right. There was no rhythm to it. There was, it was way too loud. And he kept sort of just making these huge, like snorts, (laughs) kind of trying to gasp for air. Um, but he went, his eyes were closed and he wasn't responding. So when I first woke up, I kind of just pushed his head over a little bit, you know, um, it's usually that'll, he'll roll over and he'll stop snoring. He didn't respond to that at all, which was really unusual. And so then I kind of shook him and, and said his name and tried to still thinking he's just snoring weird, um, tried to wake him up. And then when he didn't respond to that, I got a little scared And so then I started really kind of shoving him a little bit and like kind of slapping his face. Um, Sorry, that was probably not great for the audio. Mm -hmm. Um, No, that's okay. Anytime you talk about slapping his face, we're all here for it. (laughs) Yeah, there's uh, there's certain kinds of slapping his face that, you know, but no, Um, I kind of was slapping him trying to trying to get him to wake up. And of course, he wasn't responding um, at all except to keep doing the weird breathing. And so I called 911. Um, didn't know if he could hear me or not. So I told him that I was calling 911 just in case. So he would know I was getting help. Um, and the 911 operator is the person who recognized what was going on. Um, I had put my, you know, in while I was dialing, I had put my um, head on his chest to see if I could hear a heartbeat, to see if I could feel his, you know, his chest moving up and down with breath. Um, and it's the weirdest thing. I, I did not obviously, um, see or hear or feel any of those things happening. And it registered in my logical brain that I did not see those happening, but it was like this dissociation of like, it just didn't go in to the, you know, maybe more the limbic side of things. It just, I knew it, but I, but I, it didn't like register. I mean, know? it's so even for a medically trained professional, it's just something so unexpected in the middle of the night where you just aren't prepared for it. It would be hard mm-hmm. for anybody. I mean, it's not like you were on call in the hospital waiting mm-hmm. for a code to go off. This is just like right. a random like night and this just happens. Yeah. It wasn't like any heavy drinking or any like sickness he no. had beforehand. This just like happened. It's Oh my God. That, yeah, in the hospital, you call a code. People are right. primed. And people still pause and become <laughs> paralyzed with fear and, yeah. and inability to, like what you said, register and then have their body and their brain perform the acts that they need to perform. Like it is, it can right. be terrifying. Yeah. Yeah, it is. And it's just bizarre. It's like, it's almost an out of body experience because you've got these two kind of disconnected pieces of your brain seeing the same event in different ways, you know? Um, there's the logical side that understands what's happening. And then there's the other side that can't believe it. So, um, yeah. So the 911 operator is the person who recognized what was going on. And she told me, um, to do CPR and she, she walked me through instructions. I had been certified like 15 years ago or something, um, for like an after school job in college. Um, but I hadn't thought, one bit about it ever since Um, Mm -hmm. I've never needed to use it or anything Um, so she was counting with me and helping me keep pace and I did remember the BG song from my training (laughs) long ago so I was using that too in my own head um, to try to keep pace but um, he was turning blue um, and then he started turning purple and I just just couldn't believe what was happening you know people have asked me that you know were you scared that must have been so scary and like yeah I guess I I mean I probably was but I also more than anything else was just in shock like I just I couldn't yeah believe what was happening (laughs) I kept doing the motions but I it was just the most bizarre thing um yeah so I did that oh go ahead I was going to say, just to reassure our listeners, he ended up fine. In case you yes. don't know yes, or yes. follow <laughs> Dr. Glockenflecken on TikTok or Twitter, he ended up fine. You saved his life. You, you 
did a fantastic job of keeping him alive um, until the paramedics got there. Um, it, we've, we, we heard that part of the story um, from him. I, uh, the, the thing that, you know, I, I find really interesting is that, you know, up to 85% I read of cardiac arrests happen in homes, like in these situations. Mm-hmm. And that means it's family members, it's loved ones. They're the ones that are witnessing it. They're the ones who do the CPR. I mean, this is obvious trauma. Do you find yourself living with like PTSD from this? And have you been able to get help for that? Like every time he snores weird? (laughs) Yeah. So um, I do like, you know, I, if he does snore weird, I do react to that. Yeah. Um, I am, he's woken up sometimes where I would be like right here in his face, just totally, you know, an inch from him. Is, is there breath? Is he breathing? You know, just, only if it's a weird noise, if it's a, you know, if it's rhythmic, that's more comforting. But if something, you know, kind of goes off the rails for a second, sure. that always gets my attention. Um, I had a really hard time at first. Um, it does get better, but at first, so this happened in our bed. So that's supposed to be, you know, the safest place you can be is in your own home, in your own bed, you know? Yeah. Um, I did not sleep in that bed until he came home from the hospital. And then, of course, he wanted to go sleep in his bed because he didn't experience any of the things that we had experienced, Mm -hmm. uh, consciously anyway. So... So I remember that being a hard night when it was time to go get back in, in my bed and, you know, there he was and there I was back at kind of the scene of the crime is sort of what it felt like. Um, it was really hard to sleep for a while. And for a few weeks I would, well, maybe in, into a, a few months, I got a little more sporadic over time, but, um, I would wake up at 4:45 in the morning, just mm-hmm. out of the blue. Cause that's what time it happened. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it's like my body was always on alert for like, are we okay right now? So, um, yeah, now I'm, you know, I've always had sort of, after you have a kid, you've got that, that hearing, especially moms, I think of of paying attention to what's happening in your house, even while you're asleep. Um, and so I had that already and, and now it's like on overdrive. (laughs) So, yeah. Yeah. I don't know. You know, as for PTSD, I, I don't know. Um, have you talked to anyone about it? I've talked to people. I have not gone to a psychologist and this gets back to the point that I was making. Like if there had been someone offered to me or in the room with me, um, I would have used that. I just, I didn't have capacity to find one. I didn't Mm -hmm. have one already. So I couldn't just say, Hey, I need to come. Sure. Right. Right. You know, I didn't have the capacity to find one in my area that matches is a good fit. You know, it's experience in medical trauma, all the things that go into finding a psychologist and having a successful experience. Um, and it was enough. I have, I have a job. I have a full-time career. I have two small kids. Uh, his family came to visit and was staying in my home. My parents were around helping out, uh, but you know, they're aging. So it's, it's not, Right. We kind of help each other. Um, but I just had so much on my plate. And then not to mention, I had him once he came home, you know, his recovery to help with. Um, so, and and the main thing, the main reason I am not a, po- I mean, I have a psychology background. I'm not a, po- I love the idea of therapy. I've been in therapy before. I'm all for it. I just didn't happen to be in it since we've moved here. So I didn't have someone already on hand to call. And so it just felt like so much work. And I went kind of mute (laughs) for a little while. That was the other thing. You know, my friends reached out. I have a, I have a really supportive network of people around me too, which, which helped. Um, And they were, you know, FaceTiming with me. And one of them said that I looked like, you know, that, picture on the cover of time of the refugee girl and her eyes are so kind of haunted. He said, you looked like that. And, um, I have pictures from that time where you see that look in my eyes of just, just kind of empty and, and traumatized. Um, 
and I just couldn't find words. You know, I would try to have conversations with those friends and, and, you know, they told me about it afterward that I, you know, I could give like one word answers, but I couldn't follow the conversation. I, I certainly couldn't contribute anything to the conversation. I have some listener questions. Yeah. I think you've covered them all pretty well. And many of them were some variation of tell her how great she is. I'm like, that's great, <laughs> but that's not a question, but right. that's, that's, that's how it is. Here's a question from Ann M. Sidor at Ann M. Sidor, S-Y-D-O-R. How did Dr. G win the heart of someone as clearly amazing as she is pandering? <laughs> and more seriously, what tips does she have for getting medical professionals to truly listen to family members? Mm-hmm. Well, um, he did it by catfishing. He pretended that he was uh, clean and tidy and organized. And that was uh, what got my attention. No, uh, he did do that. But uh, other things got my attention too. Um, the hair. The hair. Yeah. <laughs> no. Um, <clears throat> it was the nerd thing. Ultimately, I think he was very smart and funny and all the things that everybody knows he is. But yeah. Um, I think that for healthcare professionals, I have a lot of sympathy about how strapped they are and, you know, no time, no resources, no money, no, you know, all the things that hospitals deal with. But, you know, I would say at the very least, we are all capable, no matter what constraints are on us, we are all capable of being human and of treating other people like humans. And that's what I would say is at the, the heart of the whole thing. You know, it's to remember that these caregivers are people, these fam, these people have stories and families and, you know, love and memories and all the things that you have in your life with your family and your friends, your people. Um, and you see their loved ones for a brief piece of their life. But the, the family is so much more than just that brief peace and the patient is so much more than just what you see in the hospital and those people are an extension of the patient they it's it's circular they affect each other you know if if the caregivers are taken care of better then they can better care for the patient um so it's all it's all important but the main thing to remember about how to do it is just just what would you want what would your mom want what would Mm -hmm. you want for your mom Right, right. What would you want for your kid? Do that. Right. All right. Here's another one from Spooky Jim at Paula Lorena with two A's at the end. Not fully CPR associated, but I'd like to know what it's like from her perspective of having a partner in medicine. How did her husband's mm-hmm. career path alter her life path? Mm-hmm. And if her opinion for us in medicine and in her opinion for us in medicine, how can we be better partners for our non med loved ones i love that somebody asked that that's a great question um the medical life really does i mean we kind of touched on this earlier really does just consume everything in its path including the non-medical partner attached to the medical person um so you know how did it affect my life some of it dovetailed really nicely with my own goals and that was great Uh, Some of it didn't, though. Um, So like I I mentioned before, you know, the medical path is kind of what dictated when we had our children, because I had to wait around for a couple of years for him to be done before we could move on to the next place. Um, So we did that. Um, Then, you know, we had to move a lot and I wasn't in control of where we got to move. So I graduated and it wasn't until three years later that I was able to actually start a job. I mean, I did a little bit of like adjunct teaching here and there um, to fill the gaps. But um, I didn't really, I had this three-year gap in my own career because I was just waiting to get settled somewhere because we kept having to move for his medical training. Mm -hmm. Um, I have always had to do um, the lion's share of anything happening at home. Uh, Despite having my own full-time career, you know, I had to figure out the daycare situations and the transportation and, you know, just all the details and logistics that come along with running a home and having a family, um, you know, typically would fall on me Uh, until now, like that, that shifts eventually. So once he became an attending 
I was like, here you go. Uh, it's your turn. <laughs> uh, but for those years of training that, you know, the other person is kind of on the hook for that. Um, and then, you know, residency, we went somewhere, first of all, going to residency. When he told me he matched at Iowa, I remember going, Iowa. <laughs> <laughs> I just couldn't imagine us living in Iowa or even just what is in Iowa. Um, it turned out to be a fantastic experience. So for anybody listening from Iowa, don't worry, I love, I fell in love with it once we got there. Um, we were in Iowa City and I found this job that I'm still working at, thankfully. Um, I was able to work remotely after we moved, but at the time when we um, were moving away from Iowa, when he finished, we tried to stay there because I was in a job that I loved and it just didn't work out. Things fell through with some various places. And so we ended up having to move and that was a real blow for me because that, you know, finally, after all these years, I get started in my own career, start to make some momentum, and then we're just uprooted again. Um, so luckily, I was able to make that work, and I, I kept my job just working remotely, but not everybody gets so lucky. So it certainly is, um, it affects everything. It really does. It affects everything. It affects their, how they are, their mood, their emotions, their health, um, down to all the logistics of running things together to your own I mean it just does it affects everything so um, it seems like a glamorous thing to you know date a doctor or be a married to a doctor but it's actually really not <laughs> it's kind of the opposite um, it gets better later on but certainly you know in those early years it's very hard yeah. um, it helps if you have your own thing going on and your own people and you know, if the person can come along and join great. And if not, you don't expect them to, so you're not disappointed, you know, and you've got your own thing. Can you tell people where to find you? Yeah. So, um, you can find me on Twitter, uh, lady Glockenflecken. The handle is L Glockenflecken spelled just like it sounds. Um, no, it's <laughs> L familiar. G-L-A-U-C-O-M-F-L-E-C-K-E-N. So if you can spell it and find me, then congratulations. Um, that's the easiest way to find me right now. I'm hoping to be um, a little, a few more places um, eventually. I am a pretty avid amateur photographer, so I thought maybe I should head over to Instagram too and be over there. And then I'm trying to do some, uh, some writing, so we'll see where that ends up going but well keep us updated i'm looking forward to seeing it um thank you so much for coming on we really appreciate your time yeah. really appreciate thanks you for having me it's a real pleasure to have you thank you Okay, that was Kristen Flannery, and she is awesome. Speaking of awesome, coming up next, we have an essay by Chase Anderson. I asked him to record his recent Newsweek essay, and he was gracious enough to do it. Please follow him at Twitter at ChaseTMAnderson. And without further ado. As a black gay physician, I've survived in America by embracing my anger by Dr. Chase T.M. Anderson. I'm pretty sure time has stopped, or maybe it's simply that my heart has been forced to cease its beating. I feel as though I'm watching myself from afar, observing my eyes widen as I read the word before me over and over and over. Six letters strung together to form one of the most destructive words in the English language, one of the most painful words in any language, N-word. I sit at our kitchen table, a freshman in high school. A gay African-American male about to go to a high school dance, reading the words sent over instant messenger by two of my classmates. Part of my heart breaks. The word used specifically to remind black people of their supposed place in society. I'm not that word, but now I am viewed as that word. I'll never have the luxury of forgetting this first that I never wanted, this first that I did not deserve. Alone at the table, I ignore the crack the word causes within. Instead, I give in to the fury that is bubbling up within. Something inside me twists permanently. 
As I reflect on this moment in 2021, a year after the heart-shattering murder of George Floyd sparked national and international outcry, I'm inevitably reminded of how much it took to activate parts of our society into caring about Black people and the atrocious treatment we have faced for so long. I'm also reminded of my relationship with anger as a Black, gay male living in America, a country where righteous anger as a minoritized person can lead to your death. A country where simply being born black by simply existing with the wrong skin color can mean you don't make it to adulthood. Sadly, that online message wasn't the last time I was called the N-word in high school. Far from it. It happened so many times that I was forever on guard. It was the same with homophobic slurs. And though I had friends, I kept the verbal assaults to myself because of the shame. I believed I was the problem. As a young teenager, anger consumed me. There were times I felt as though I was a receptacle, overflowing with the malice others had, without my consent, shoved into me. I'd experienced depression and suicidal thoughts that began in seventh grade due to bullying and a lack of acceptance, and so, to survive high school, I transformed myself. I did what I could to control the pitch of my voice, and I limited my expressive hand motions. I learned quickly to be friends with the right people, and how that somehow protected me. Blending in naturally was a luxury I didn't have, but I tried my hardest. When I came out officially junior year, it did help because people couldn't gossip as much, asking, is he or isn't he? Or, of course he is, just look at him. But the self-loathing remained. Then I ran. At age 18, I left Seattle and flew across the country to college in the hopes that it would be a fresh start. A place where I could not only study science, but openly express who I truly was. I hoped it would be a place where I could let go of anger. Within the first weeks, I was rejected from a fraternity because I was gay. Some fraternity brothers later told me how my being openly gay had led to me being blacklisted by two people in the fraternity at the end of voting for bids. Staff got involved. I had to relive what had happened and was told they would handle it. Eventually, it was relayed back to me by staff that the fraternity claimed I hadn't gotten a bid because I didn't get along with other people. I was told that the best that could be done was to have the fraternity brothers do sensitivity training. I went on to have panic attacks, though I wouldn't know what crying during exams or feeling unable to breathe was actually called until medical school, and failed all my first exams. I was sure I was going to fail college. At times, I sat in the shower contemplating suicide. I furiously vowed to become friends with every person on campus. I would show those who said I didn't get along with people that they had messed with the wrong black gay person. I succeeded in making friends, but that didn't stop the panic attacks, the suicidal thoughts, or the nightmares where I woke screaming and crying. But harnessing my fury helped me survive. And those friends in college saved my life. Each one shared their own stories in anger. Whether it was the treatment of women in science, racism, homophobia, xenophobia, social inequities, we sat in the chaos of the world together. They validated my feelings as I validated theirs. Just as importantly, they encouraged me to be a better person. That happened in the little moments when we stayed up with each other until dawn talking, when sharing our stories united our hearts. It was the bigger moments when friends publicly called out others for homophobic slurs, or when I then realized I could speak up against such words too. It was two friends taking the time to sit down with me one day during the summer after freshman year and saying, you can do better. We've seen such power in you, and you can help others. We know you're hurting, your anger is valid, but you can also be so much more. These people told me they love me for me. By the time I entered graduate school to study biological engineering in 2013, my anger had abated and my depression had dissipated. Now when I heard the N-word or homophobic slur, I often rolled my eyes before taking the person to task. I set boundaries with more ease. During those two years of graduate school, I felt I was living in America as my true self, a black gay man who was seen as so much more. I was known for being gay and that was seen as a beautiful aspect of my overall self. I dated, a lot. I wore crimson pants to classes and lab and I was no longer afraid to be my truest self. I mentored younger classmates and worked to improve the lives of minoritized friends on campus. I had the life I always wanted. And yet, less than six months later, after matriculating into medical school in the fall of 2013, I was drowning. 
I became class president and immediately heard of the mo some of the most disgusting and disparaging comments about myself and other minoritized students I'd ever heard in my li entire life. I heard from that I heard them from classmates and from faculty. It felt like high school all over again, and it seemed that who I was, a black gay man, could not exist within the medical system. Why were my classmates allowed to use discriminatory words, but the second I calmly spoke up for myself or others, it caused friction? Why were my words to administrators about the issues ignored about these issues ignored by many, while white colleagues who actually made the comments were continuously praised? Why was I unprofessional for advocating for people as class president, but white colleagues being racist was fine? Near the end of my third year of medical school, I realized I could no longer excuse the imbalance. As a black gay male in America, it was not my job to forever subdue my anger. I chose to use it and it empowered me. Once, a white classmate who had used the N-word during our first months of medical school said that dealing with me was like dealing with a patient exhibiting mania. I spoke with them privately and made it clear that that kind of joking was not acceptable, but having to constantly set limits hollowed me out. By the time I left medical school, I felt like a shell of the person who had been flourishing at graduate school. I longed to return to that sense of strength and confidence, but residency at other plans. First, it was being called to the name of the only other black physician in our program. Then I received a grading far below others. I strongly believe this was because I told my attending that how she was asking questions, a process in medicine known as pimping where senior medical staff sometimes ask difficult questions during rounds to embarrass, was causing me to have panic attacks, amongst other instances of her biases playing out. I was called unprofessional for not wearing a tie, but I observed as white attendings would openly disparage me and other minoritized trainees. Only three months in, I grasped that I'd chosen the wrong university. Because I had managed my anger before and turned it into a powerful tool to shield me, I began to do so again. I mapped out what I could change. I worked on helping one senior staff member see how toxic the environment was, and a year after I began training, they apologized for how they had purposely ignored my words about discriminatory events and for the hand they had had in them. After that, we met for we had weekly meetings where we spoke about how to change the training program to benefit minoritized trainees and implemented many of those changes. At the end of the three years, I made the choice to graduate early and start my fellowship in child and adolescent psychiatry elsewhere. Now, almost a year in a fellowship in California, I'm happy and I'm healing. Being at a university that supports my voice and who I am as a person has changed my life. That fury that was once overwhelming has mainly faded. There are times it flares, appropriately so. When I read about Asian Americans experiencing higher rates of depression and anxiety because of bigotry around coronavirus. When literary agents say that the memoir I wrote about medical school to help the minoritized isn't for them, sometimes with racially charged comments. Watching our government debate if people deserve a living wage. But overall, my mind is calmer I feel supported and I ride the wave when those moments happen. I remember that I can do something about some of those inequities. I can engender change. I have the strength and power to help other minoritized people have a different journey and a different relationship with anger. I am now a qualified physician able to work with adolescents and kids around their anger and their feelings. We sit together and they learn how to navigate their rage in a space where they aren't alone, where their anger is validated, and we speak about how to safely express their righteous ire. I have the opportunity to hold their feelings with them and help them figure out how to move forward while embracing all parts of who they are and how to stay safe in this world. And that makes my personal journey internally worth it. This podcast is not a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Please consult a physician or other qualified health care provider for your specific health care needs or concerns. The opinions expressed on this podcast do not represent the opinions of our employees. Details in the podcast have been changed so that patient identification is not possible.
Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.